Lord Jesus, you are, you are the cornerstone around which our lives are intended to be built. You're the cornerstone uh, upon which um, our lives are, are t- intended to be deeply attached to and deeply formed from and, and deeply influenced by and shaped by and directed by. And when that is true of our lives, then, then everything else begins to fall in place. And in the good times, uh, you're at the center. In the hard times, you're at the center. In the broken times, you're at the center. Uh, you're the cornerstone. And you're the cornerstone who has this unending love for us. I pray that, that in the time that remains, that we will continue to sense your presence. I pray your spirit will speak through me and speak into our hearts and minds for, for deep stirring. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. We have just come off of, of Easter a week ago. A lot of us were here. Not all of us could be, but a lot of us were here. And, and I found myself reflecting again and again to where we were at last week. We talked about Jesus' words in John 19.30. It's a Friday 2,000 years ago. He's on the cross, and he's, he's breathing his very last. And he says, he shouts out, it, it is finished. And we reflected upon what he meant by that. He was saying that the barrier between us and God was finally destroyed by him, by his death on the cross. This barrier was finally ripped in two. And we talked about how there'd been this symbol in the temple and the tabernacle previously for centuries. And in the moment that he said that and died, we talked about how supernaturally that, that massive curtain was ripped in two. And, and it, everything changed for all those who would place their faith in Jesus. And we even had these little, for those of you that were not here, we even had these small pieces of cloth that represented that temple curtain that had kept people apart from God for all of those uh, many, many centuries and far beyond. And, and many of us, uh, last Sunday, we, we tore that piece of cloth. And I've had mine, my torn cloth, in my journal that I open up every morning. And so every morning for seven days now, I open up my journal, and there's this reminder that the curtain was ripped in two. And, and I am in the presence of God, the very presence of God. And I hope many of you have had continued to reflect upon that as well. And, and, and we know that was Friday, and we know that on Sunday that Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, he's not a dead Savior, he's just a living Savior. He rose from the dead. And we know, many of us that have been following Jesus, we understand that he rose 2,000 years ago, and his whole game plan was that, was that those that, that first saw him would tell others that he rose, and he's the risen Son of God, and they would believe, and as they would believe, they would tell others and others and others. And a lot of us would know Matthew 28, 18 to 20. A lot of us would know that. It's called the Great Commission. Uh, it's been given that title. And in essence, Jesus says, here's the game plan. I, I, I died, I rose, I'll hang out with you off and on for 40 days. And then the way this is going to spread from country to country and generation to generation is those that know me will tell others and they'll believe. And now, here's the deal. Now for a lot of us, we just, 2,000 years later, it just seems so natural. Like, what, are, what other plan would God have? It seems so natural. 2,000 years ago, he rose from the dead. One person tells another, who tells another, tells another. And, and I think for those of us that know Jesus, we can become um, almost numb to the awe that that actually has worked. To the awe that that actually has worked down through 2,000 years. And some of you that are not followers of Jesus... Maybe you've heard that was his plan, and you're thinking, hadn't worked on me. 
And you, and you understand why it hasn't probably because it is so, so unrealistic. And so whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, I want us to go back to John chapter 20, which is the very first Easter. And I want to challenge you best as you can, forget the last 2,000 years and try to put yourself on that very first Easter. Try to put yourself in the shoes of those apostles on that very first Easter. And these are the 22 verses I'm going to teach about. I'm going to encourage you to, to read these verses today. John 20, verses 19 to 29. John 20, 19 to 29. And Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. Acts 1, 1 to 11. Read those sometime today. So it's, it's Easter evening in John chapter 20, verse 19. It's Easter evening, and the apostles are, are fearful. They're behind locked doors. They're in hiding. Their Savior, their Messiah, at least the one they thought was their Savior, has been crucified, and they're afraid now that their lives will be taken by the same that killed Jesus as well. They're behind locked doors. And it says in such a, almost an understated fashion, Suddenly, even though the door's locked, suddenly Jesus is there with him. He's right there with him. And John doesn't give this detail, but if you look at the Gospel of Luke, Luke tells this detail. Luke says, when they saw Jesus, they were deeply frightened, and they thought they were seeing a ghost. So their pulse has accelerated. Maybe the beads of sweat have begun to form. They think they're seeing a ghost. They think they're going crazy. And then John picks up, just as Luke does, John picks up and says that Jesus is there. And Jesus says, knowing where they're at, he says, look, here are the nail prints in my hand. Here are the scars. Here's the scar on my side. I'm alive as I said I would be. And John very simply says, they were filled with joy. What Jesus had said would happen has happened, and he's alive again. He's standing right there with them. He's alive. They've seen him for the very first time. It's Easter. It's evening at Easter. They've seen him for the very first time. And then there are these two verses that follow, verses 22 and 23, and and I need to give some explanation of these. And when I do it, I risk going on a sidetrack, and I risk losing you, okay? But if I don't go there, then you'll read this, and you'll get sidetracked later today, okay? So I'm going to take this sidetrack. I'm going to give some interpretation, verses 22 and 23, then we'll come back. So don't, don't go off to the grocery shopping list, okay? Hang with me. Okay, verse 22 says this, Then Jesus breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they're forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they're not forgiven. So he breathed on them, said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Okay, the Holy Spirit is, there is one God, according to Scripture, but in some mysterious way, there's one God of three persons. There's God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, okay? And in Old Testament times, uh, for, for a unique specific periods of time. Sometime God would send His Spirit, God the Spirit, upon someone for a temporary assignment. You read the Old Testament from time to time, God actually sends His Spirit into them. Sometimes it's to write Scripture, like the Holy Spirit directs them to write Scripture. Sometimes it's to give God's prophetic word, and they do that. Sometimes it's to fight a great battle, and they do that. But it's for a temporary assignment. God sends the Holy Spirit into them, somehow to live within them. But when the assignment's done, the Holy Spirit then departs. The Holy Spirit leaves them. That's been the way it's been from, you know, from Adam and Eve up through this point in time. And so here it says, here it says that Jesus breathes on them. He says, receive the Holy Spirit. And Jesus, just on Thursday night before Easter, he just said to them in John 14, 16 and 17, John 14, 16 and 17, he said, this is again Thursday before Easter, I will ask the Father and he'll give you another advocate 
He'll never leave you. He's the Holy Spirit who leads to all truth. He said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And other passages explain the Holy Spirit will begin to live in someone and never leave them. Like the Spirit of God will begin to live within them from now on. But, but I would suggest to you that that's not what happens here on Easter night. And I'll give you three reasons that I would suggest that. One is that, that Jesus says in John 16, 7, he says the Holy Spirit can't come in this permanence until I'm gone back to heaven. Okay, so the Holy Spirit can't come this way, so I'm going back to heaven. And Jesus is not going back to heaven yet. He's here. He's going to be here for 40 days. That hasn't happened. You turn to Acts chapter 1, and there are 40 days described after this Easter. And Jesus is saying to them, wait for the Holy Spirit. Clearly saying, wait. He's saying the Holy Spirit hasn't come permanently yet. And then I would also say, you look at this passage, you see what happens after that Easter night, and there's no evidence of a change in the apostles. They're pretty much the same guys, but you get to Acts 2, like 50 days later, when I think the Holy Spirit came, and there's this massive change in them, okay? So I would suggest when you read this later today, this isn't the time that God began to give followers of Jesus the Holy Spirit in a permanent fashion, okay? Okay, okay, that, that's my potential sidetrack, okay? So if I lost you, come back now. Okay, it's Easter night, it's Easter night. The passage continues, and it says... One of the apostles wasn't there. Thomas wasn't there. And you could imagine the passion the other apostles had. They're filled with joy. I bet they went looking for Thomas. They find him, apparently, fairly quickly. They find him. And I would suggest to you that that this is going to be the easiest sales job they will ever have about Jesus being risen. This is going to be the easiest person to convince that they will ever encounter that he's alive. Why? Because Thomas had spent three years day and night with Jesus, as they had. Three years day and night. Thomas had this front row seat on the day that Jesus took a, a lunch bag and fed 5,000 men plus women. Thomas was in the middle of that, distributing that food. Thomas was there when Jesus walked on water. Thomas was there when Jesus gave sight to the blind. Thomas was there again and again when someone ravaged, just ravaged with leprosy. Their skin would be made fresh and clean and new in an instant. He saw all of that. Thomas would even be there when at least three times, the scripture says at least three times, Jesus rose someone from the dead. And even just two to three weeks before this event, he was there when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. He'd seen Jesus do it. And in addition to that, Jesus had said again and again, I'll die on Sunday. I'll come back again. Thomas had heard all of that. On top of all that, he sees his, his buddies that had been in the deepest despair and despondency, and now they're joy-filled and full of energy. He sees all of that, and so they say, Thomas, he's back. We've seen him. And Scripture says that Thomas won't believe them. He simply won't believe them. Why? And I would suggest it's not because he was a, he was a hard case. It's just that resurrection goes against every single grain of experience we have. It goes against all natural laws. It's in deep opposition to all natural law. And Thomas knows that. He knows that. So, so his fellow apostles say, we've seen him. And Thomas says, I've got I've to see him. I've got to put my nail in the holes in, in his palms. I've got to put my hand in the hole in the side where the spear was. So eight days after Easter, they're in this locked room again, probably the same locked room, and it says Jesus showed up again, and he goes right to Thomas, and he says, here, go ahead and put your hand here, 
put your finger here, put your hand here. And Thomas says, I don't need to. But now I'm, I see you for myself, I believe. And then Jesus says something very profound. Verse 29, he says, you believe because you've seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. And here's the deal. Scripture says he only actually shows himself physically resurrected to a little more than 500 people. Only a little more than 500 will get to personally see him resurrected. And everybody else is going to have to believe in the absence of that. Everybody else on the planet then and to come. I have to believe apart from that. And so Jesus gives a great commission in Matthew 28. And he tells them, here's the deal. Risen from the dead. The history of the human race now depends upon you to tell others. And the four Gospels close, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John come to a close. And the apostles, according to the record, have only told one person Jesus has risen from the dead, Thomas, and Thomas didn't believe. Okay, the track record is 0 for 1. Okay, it's 0 for 1. And to make it even worse than that, if you turn one page to Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 1, verse 3, I remember where I sat when this hit me some time back. It says, Acts 1-3, it says, During the 40 days after Jesus' crucifixion, he appeared to the apostles from time to time, and he proved to them in many ways he was actually alive, and he talked to them about the kingdom of God. Okay, so he kept appearing to them for 40 days. Why? To keep proving to them in many ways he was actually alive. Why do you think he had to do that? Because they were struggling to believe it themselves. They'd seen him Easter night, and Jesus knows where they're at. Like Their faith is really fragile, so he comes back again, and he proves again, hey, guys, I am alive, and maybe shows them other ways. In fact, there's a time where he actually takes fish, and he eats some and gives them some and says, look, you know, it's disappearing into my mouth. It's going to my stomach. Why does he show up again and again and again? Because they're struggling to believe, even though they've seen him once and twice and three times and who knows how many times over 40 days. And so the whole game plan is, it's all banked upon these apostles. They're 0 for 1, and they're 0 for 1. Thomas, in in basketball terms, he should have been an uncontested layup, right? They are 0 for 1, and they're struggling to believe. They're struggling to believe themselves, themselves. What chance do they have now going to the people of Jerusalem that saw Jesus die go to the people of Jerusalem and say, he's alive. And they say, how do you know? And they say, well, he appeared to me. He appeared to, hey, Peter, Peter and John, the two of us, we saw him. And they're saying, well, where is he now? Well, he's in heaven. Well, I want to see him. Sorry, can't see him. How much luck will they have? Because Jesus says in Matthew 28, I want you to go to every nation, every people group, all of them. How much luck will they have when they go to Samaria, just to the north, and the Samaritans hate hate the Jewish people, and they are in constant disagreement, such that if you were a a Jewish person, you went to Samaria, and it's this bright sunny day, unlike today, not a cloud in the sky, and you would say, what a beautiful sunny day, the Samaritan would say, I don't believe it is, would argue with you. What chance do they have to go to the Samaritans and say, there's this guy named Jesus, he died, he was crucified, he's this executed criminal, but he rose from the dead, give your life to him, follow him. What chance will they have when they, as they do, when they go to Europe and Africa 
and Asia, and people have never even heard there's supposed to be a Messiah. And they begin to tell, tell people there, hey, there's this man that died and rose, and just trust us. And for those, if, if they are more successful with others than they were with Thomas, if, if someone believes, okay, because they can say, they've got this advantage, they can say, I saw him. So now someone finally believes them, and they're supposed to go tell someone, and that person goes, and, and someone asks, how do you know? And, and did, like, did you see him? And they have to say, no, I, I didn't see him, but, but Peter and John, I know Peter and John. They're trustworthy. Peter and John saw him. And suppose just on sheer chance that person believes, and they go tell someone, and, and someone says, did you see him? No, I didn't, but Peter and John did. Do you know Peter and John? No. And just suppose a few centuries pass, like 20 centuries pass, and, and I've had this conversation, and, and I'll give you one side of it, uh, where I've told someone about Jesus uh, dying and rising from the dead, and I have to say, no, no, I haven't actually seen him risen from the dead. But Peter and John did. Friends of mine? No, no, they're, I wouldn't exactly say they were friends of mine. Why, why aren't they friends? Well, they've, they've been dead 2,000 years. And by then, the person is thinking, in fact, the next question probably is, have you ever been committed to an insane asylum? Do you really believe this? You want me to believe this? It makes me think if I were back 2,000 years ago, in the days following that very first Easter, it makes me wonder what the odds were that Christianity would survive the lifetime of the apostles. They believed. They did believe. But what are the odds that Christianity would survive the lifetime of the apostles? In Acts chapter 5, just a little bit further in Acts chapter 5, verses 38 and 39, the setup to this is the religious leaders in Jerusalem are concerned because the apostles keep insisting that Jesus is risen from the dead. And so the religious leaders decide we, we, we have to stop this, whatever it takes. We will beat them if we have to. We will imprison them if we have to. We'll kill them if we have to. We have to stop this. And Gamaliel, who is one of the brilliant thinkers of their world, Gamaliel in Acts 5, 38, 39, he says, stop. And think about this, guys. Think about this. There's some people traveling around Jerusalem, and they're saying an executed criminal is risen from the dead, and, and they don't have anything to prove it. And he's saying, if, if this is just simply they're doing, we don't have to kill this. It will die its own death. Think about it, guys. I mean, how far is this going to run? How far will that story run? How, like, how many blithering idiots are out there? And then he says, but if it really is God working through them, we can't stop it. It can't be stopped. It cannot be stopped. So now 2,000 years have passed, and today there are 2 billion people on the planet that not only believe Jesus rose from the dead, but they believe so much so they have actually surrendered leadership of their life to him. 2 billion people on the planet, and they're on every continent on this planet, every continent. And to bring it closer to home, there have been way over 1,000 people that while they have been part of the FCC community, over 1,000 have come to believe he's risen and have given their lives to him right here, right here, right here. What has caused the seismic shift? What has caused from, from the logical progression of how this should have died long ago, what has caused the seismic shift which is, has created the world that we now know? 
In fact, the belief that many of us here now have. In Acts chapter 1, verses 4, 5, and 8. Um, this is Jesus teaching them. This is within that 40-day window when he's appeared to them again and again. In verse 4, once he was eating with them, he commanded them, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised, as I told you before. John baptized with water, but in just a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. He said, don't leave Jerusalem. You need to wait until the Holy Spirit actually comes and begins to live within you. And then verse 8, I pick it up again, and this is actually the, the 40th day. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. He's saying, when the Holy Spirit begins to live in you, I'm going to give you power. And the Holy Spirit, again, is it's one-third of the Godhead. It's one-third of the, tr- of the Trinity. It, it's God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has, has all of the power of God. Not a part of it, not a third of it, all of the power of God. The Holy Spirit is a person, by the way, has all the power of God. The Holy Spirit has all of the wisdom of God. Holy Spirit has all of the love of God, and, and He begins to live inside of anyone who has placed their faith in Jesus. He begins to live within them. And Jesus is saying, when He lives within you, He will give you, you will have alive within you the very power of God to work as God wants to work. And specifically here, He's saying there's going to be this seismic shift when you obey God and, and you humbly, in your fragile words simply say, Jesus, you tell them the story. He said, the power of God is going to work in that story. I've never forgotten the first year that I was a follower of Jesus. And in that first year, I felt prompted to invite some co-workers into a study of the gospel of John. I'd never done anything like this in my life. I was clueless, uh, fearful. I didn't even know how to explain any of John myself. But I thought, at least if we look at John, maybe something God can speak, because I don't know what to say. And I remember some people that began to come, and one was a man named Brent Hauser, 25 years old. I'd recruited him. He had the highest GPA of any person I ever recruited. He graduated in engineering with a 3.94, highly, highly intellectual, and he shows up. I'm thinking, oh, great. Like, give me a, give me a feeler. Don't give me a thinker, because this is a crazy thing. And some time passes, and Brent Hauser places his faith in Jesus. And when he does, my response was, you got to be kidding. You believe it too? (laughs) And I'll never forget, Brent was 25, Junior Shivers was 60 years old, and he was this drilling supervisor. And drilling, if you've been in the oil business, it's it's the crudest part of the world of the crude oil business. And He's 60 years old, and he shows up, and I'm thinking, oh, he's come to heckle us. And a matter of weeks, Junior Shivers begins to believe Jesus is alive, and he gives his life to Jesus. That was was year one. Now I'm in year 31, and last month, I got to see like four men begin to believe he's alive and surrender leadership to Jesus for men. And I wasn't the influence in their life. Some other people were the influences upon them, but I got to see it. And even after all these years, there's still a part of me that goes, you got to be kidding. Like the Holy Spirit got you too. The Holy Spirit has got you too. 
And so there's this power. And again, if you begin to follow Jesus, the Holy Spirit lives in you. And so when you tell anyone the story of Jesus, you're not alone. And you can feel your words are very inadequate, and they are. But the power of God is at work. You can count on that power of God is at work. And because the Holy Spirit lives within you, it's not just the power to tell others. It's the power of a transformed life as well. And John 16, 7, Jesus talks about sending the Holy Spirit. And the word he uses there, it's a Greek word. The word is paraclete. He says, I'll send the paraclete. And he talks about that's the Holy Spirit. And there are English translations of paraclete, which is this, this uh, like fully orbed word of, of attributes and traits of this one who is the paraclete. And so it's translated in English in different ways, and they're all accurate. They're different facets of the reality of the Holy Spirit. One translation will say, will say he's, he's the advocate. In other words, he's the one that will fight for you. Like the Spirit of God all over the power of God, all the wisdom of God, all the love of God. He will fight for you. He's your advocate. Another translation says he's your comforter. Some of you today, that's why you're here to hear. If you're a follower of Jesus, the spirit lives in you and he is your comforter in your weakness and grief and loss. Or some of you that don't know Jesus yet, you're thinking, I need a comforter. And you're hearing how you can find the ultimate comforter is place your faith in Jesus. Another translation is, he's the encourager. He's the one that will, he was the one on the front row with me 20 minutes ago saying, you can do it. Get up there, guy, you can do it. He's the encourager. Another translation, he's the counselor. In other words, he will guide you. As Jesus says in in John 6, 13, he will guide you into all truth. He will guide you. He lives in you. So 2,000 years ago, it's... uh, 40 days have passed since the crucifixion. And I want to pick up, this is the 40th day after the crucifixion. It's Acts 1-9. This is what happens. After saying this, Jesus was taken up into a cloud while they were watching. They could no longer see him. As they strained to see him rising into heaven, two white-robed men suddenly stood among them. Men of Galilee, they said, why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven into the same, in the same way you saw him go. So Christianity, again, this is day 40. Christianity has this very fragile, tenuous beginning. There's this small handful of people that believe Jesus is the risen Lord. And they're waiting in the shadows of Jerusalem, prayerful, hopeful. They're waiting because Jesus said to wait. They're waiting for the Holy Spirit, and they have no idea. In 10 short days, there'll be a seismic shift in the course of human history. And God will place them at the very epicenter of that shift. Father in heaven, uh, may we be gripped fresh with the awe, the awe of what has transpired from the resurrection to this day. May we be gripped with the awe that it's been your power, your supernatural power, by which you've met any willing, seeking, searching person to help them come to faith. It's by your power. May we realize it's by your power, the power of your spirit, that our lives can be and are being changed. May we, may we realize that, that this uh, seismic, deep seismic activity remaking the human race is still going on. And may we realize deeply 
that as those first apostles would be at the epicenter of the shift, those of us that follow Jesus, we also, we are at the epicenter of that ongoing shift. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.